0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit Ellerslie.com. Well, you may notice that we are in a completely different environment for this series. I'm actually really excited just to be in a studio. It has a whole different tone, as you probably have noticed. In other words, this is more like me sitting across a coffee table with you discussing the profundity of God's calling in our lives. So, though this is a slightly different format for this series in Ephesians chapter 4, I'm actually really excited for what God has in store for us in our time together. Now, in this little section that we're going to be walking through, I've been calling it just the calling of God in our life. In other words, what does it mean for us to practically press in and know God's calling in our lives? Now, this particular session, I am calling, and it's kind of a cheesy title, but I'm calling it the outflow of the inflow. And the whole idea is this. If we don't properly understand Ephesians chapters one, two, and three, well, then we're going to fail to miss the emphasis of what Paul is saying in chapter four. So with that being said, let's just kind of walk through a review of Ephesians chapters one through three, because that is going to lay the foundation for where we're going to be heading in this particular series. So as you probably know, Ephesians, or at least how I've been defining Ephesians, is all about living from our position in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is not a whole list of series of do's and don'ts. Ephesians is not a correction letter. Rather, this is Paul exhorting the church to say, this is what your life is as individuals and as the body of Christ is supposed to look like in Christ Jesus. Now, and I've walked through this so many times in this series, but just as a fresh reminder, Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is all about our seated position. Over 30 times in those three chapters, Paul uses the language that we are to be in Christ, in him, in whom. And it's that kind of a language. And from chapters 1 through 3, Paul then gets into chapters four through six, which is all about our walking response. So the idea then is we are to be seated in Christ Jesus, that we are to never get to get up from that position. We are to remain fixed in Christ. And yet while we are remaining seated in Christ Jesus, there should be a flow. There should be a practical living out of what it means to be in Christ, which is chapters four through six. Now, what I want to do again is I just want to walk through chapters 1 through 3 with you just as a fresh reminder. So whether or not you've listened to all the previous studies that we've done in Ephesians or not, this will at least help get you up to speed in terms of what does the first three chapters actually have to say. Again, those three chapters are all about our seated position. It's all the theology and and the understanding of our position in Christ Jesus. Now, in verses three through 14 of chapter one, Paul begins to talk through our blessings, the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. Isn't it interesting that every single blessing that God has for you is not contained in something, it's contained in someone. In other words, everything that God wants to do in your life is found in Jesus Christ. And as you walk through those first 14 verses, What you begin to notice is that every single blessing that God has for us finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So whether it's the adoption or the forgiveness or the fact that we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives, all of that is because of all that Jesus has done upon the cross. He is the very blessing that we receive. Now in verse 15 through 19, Paul begins his first prayer. And he's talking about this idea of receiving wisdom and insight and the knowledge of who Jesus is. It is a profound prayer. And if you haven't listened to that section, I would encourage you to go back and listen to all those sessions or uh, episodes that we've talked through, those studies that we had in chapter one. Now coming out of the prayer in verse 20, Paul begins to talk about the power of God that is demonstrated. So in verse 19, Paul uses four different Greek words for the word power. And he says, I'm trying to describe the overwhelming power of God that is working and demonstrating itself. Well, what does that look like? So, Paul gives a series of illustrations. He says the power of God is demonstrated first in the life of Jesus, which is chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. And so, Paul begins to describe the life of Jesus and the fact that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. He literally stuck his hand in the midst of physical death and raised Jesus to physical life. And if that wasn't good enough, and that would have been just amazing in and of itself, he took Jesus and seated him at the right hand of the Father, far above all principality, power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, and put everything beneath his feet. And it's an incredible reality. And as you look at that position that Jesus has, it is all because of the power of God working in the life of Jesus. Well, as we move into chapter 2, Paul gives another illustration of the power of God, which is us. So in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, Paul says, let me describe how God's power has worked in your life. And he says, hey, just as Jesus was dead physically, so too you are dead spiritually and there's an interesting parallel taking place. That the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that God did inside of our lives raising us from spiritual death bringing us into spiritual life. And just as the Father brought Jesus from physical life and seated him at the hev- in the heavenly realms at the right hand of the Father, so too Paul says you and I spiritually have been brought into the heavenly realms and are now sitting in Christ Jesus, what an amazing reality that you and I get to experience in Christ. So he gives the illustration of Jesus. He gives the illustration of us spiritually. And then he moves in chapter two, verse 11 through 22, talking about the demonstration of the power of God in the church. And he says there's these two groups that make up the church. You have the Jews and you have the Gentiles. Now, these two groups utterly hated each other. In fact, there was such animosity, the mindset, and I just love this idea, uh, not in the sense of like, ooh, that's amazing, but it's just the severity of this is so intense. But in the mind of a Jew back in the time of Jesus, the thought process was that the only reason why God created the Gentiles was because the Gentiles were going to be the fuel for the fires of hell. (laughs) So as you can tell, there was a lot of animosity. There was a lot of conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. And here's what Paul says. He says that that dividing wall that separated the Jews and the Gentiles, Jesus upon the cross has torn that dividing wall down. And now Jesus himself is our peace. So all the barriers and all the distinctions and all the separation that we had between the Jews and the Gentiles, those have been removed. And now we are one in Christ Jesus, that the body of Christ should be functioning in unity. Now that seems rather crazy. And I would agree, (laughs) but that's because it's a demonstration of the power of God. What may look utterly impossible is possible with God. So just as it is impossible to raise a dead man you know, from the grave, just as it is impossible to raise a spiritually dead man from his sins, so too the power of God is demonstrated in the church by bringing unity amongst these two groups of people who up to this point utterly hated each other. And then Paul, as he moves into chapter 3, gives another illustration, which is his own life. So in Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13, Paul says that he himself, is a demonstration of the power of God because here he is a Pharisee of Pharisees, as we are told. Here he is a persecutor of the church, and yet he is sent as the apostle to the Gentiles. That same group that he would have hated growing up is the very people that God has sent him to to be an evangelist, to be an apostle, to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, at the very end of chapter three, that we kind of walked through in the last series or the last section of studies, is all about Paul's second prayer. And it ends in this phenomenal declaration that everything is possible in Christ Jesus, that he's able to go beyond over and above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. Again, there's this overwhelming emphasis that everything going on in chapters 1 through 3 is about the life of Jesus Within, And as I already mentioned, over 30 times in those first three chapters, Paul uses the language of in Christ, in him, in whom. In other words, our whole life, our whole theology should be wrapped up in Christ, in him, in whom. This is all about Jesus. Now, take that idea. And as we come into chapters four through six, what you begin to discover is that four through six is all about the practical living of that in Christ reality. So I've been calling it the walking response. In other words, chapters four through six is all about what living in Christ practically looks like within the body of Christ, the church, when you are by yourself, uh, what in Christ looks like in your thinking and in your speaking, in your relationship with others, and marriage and family, down at the job, within spiritual warfare. In other words, Paul is covering the gamut of the Christian life saying that the Christian life should be defined and marked by the position of being in Christ Jesus. So get this emphasis. There shouldn't be a single area where the reality of Christ in you doesn't influence, inform, and invade your life. In other words, being in Christ is the foundation. Everything in our lives flow from that incredible reality that Paul talks about in chapters one through three. So as we come into chapter four and begin to talk about the practicals of the Christian life, you can't just say, all right, well, I'm gonna grip my teeth, I'm gonna muster up the, uh, the ability and the boldness and, and I'm going to go out and do it. See, you'll miss the whole emphasis because the emphasis is not what you can do outside of Christ. Rather, it is all about what he wants to do in and through your life as a believer. So though it should affect every area of your life, this isn't about self-accomplishment. This isn't about self-producing the Christian life. Rather, it is about living from that position in Christ every moment of every single day in every arena. So look at how Paul starts in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this, Therefore, now stop right there. You know that every time you see the word, therefore— You're supposed to stop and say, well, what is that therefore, therefore? (laughs) All right, that's cheesy. However, it's still true. In other words, Paul's not just starting a brand new thought. He's connecting chapter 4, verse 1 to what he's already said in chapters 1 through 3. So again, we cannot come into chapter 4 and say, all right, this is all about how to live the Christian life. It is. Paul is describing that reality of living in Christ. But it's, again, not done through your human effort or your wisdom or your ability or your talent. If you try to live the Christian life out of you, well, then what you'll find is that it actually doesn't work properly. Yeah, you can fake it till you make it for a while. But you'll never experience the overwhelming transformation of your soul if you're not living from the position of being in Christ. You must come into chapter four. And as we look at chapters four through six, you have to come into that section flowing from chapters one through three to do so. Otherwise causes chaos. Now, here's the interesting distinction. If I merely in my own ability, try to live chapters four through six, well, it's actually going to be lacking the empowerment of God in our life. It's going to be self-effort and legalism rather than a spirit produced reality which is the Christian life. And yet, strangely, if all I have is chapters one through three and I do not move into chapters four through six, well, it produces a great passivity and actually a behavioral heresy in my life. Let me explain that really quick. There's a tendency in the church today that just presumes, well, all right, I'm going to just sit back and do nothing until God forces me. Well, that's not the Christian life. I am to actually go out and live the Christian life But it's not through my resource. It's not through my wisdom. It's not through my talent or ability. I am to live by the indwelling life of Christ within me. So as God, through his spirit, empowers my life, that's how I live. So yeah, I go out and I live. But I don't lean. I don't trust. I don't have faith in my own ability. I lean. I trust. I have faith in him. Well, the opposite is sort of true as well. If all I have is the head knowledge, if if I know all the right facts, chapters one through three, but I fail to live it out in the reality of my life, well, that becomes a behavioral heresy. I might know correct doctrine. I might have all the right answers, but if it's not actually coming out as fruit of my life, well, what good is that information? See, I need both chapters one through three and chapters four through six. I need to have the academics and the understanding and the theology of what it means to be in Christ. But I also must allow that to come in and influence everything that I say and everything that I do. I need, if I may use this language, the whole book of Ephesians for living, not just half of it. Well, here's another thought to kind of sum up that idea. Your manner of life must match up with your theology and your calling. Again, I don't want to just have chapters one through three and all this great information without living it. So over the course of this series, we're going to be diving into the beginning parts of chapter four of Ephesians. It's an incredible section all about God's calling in our lives. I don't know about you, but we live in a time where it seems like everyone is searching for God's calling. Well, what is God's will for my life? What am I called to do? And as we look at culture today and we look at kind of the trajectory of where things are heading, well, you could easily become, well, discouraged. But what does it mean to be a Christian who's alive in their strength in this day and this hour? And what does that mean to live in light of God's calling in this generation? So I'm really excited to dive into this whole series with you. So let me just leave you with a final thought. Again, I'm not merely to have the information, chapters one through three, I am to live it out. Chapters four through six. But again, if all I do is try to live out the Christian life without being in Christ, well, that's going to produce nothing. I need the reality of being in Christ, the inflow, and let that inflow create the outflow. Now, you may seem or maybe feel a bit overwhelmed by this whole thing. So let me give you a final verse. And it's actually the way that Paul ends chapter three. Listen to what Paul says again. He says, now to him who was able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you realize that we need Jesus to live out the Christian life? That it's not just about head knowledge, it's not just about details and information and academics though those aren't bad. The reality is I must allow the indwelling life of Christ within me through his spirit to be the impetus, to be the empowerment of how I live my life. Can I encourage you afresh to turn to Jesus Christ? Can I encourage you to seek first the kingdom of God and realize that if you are going to live the Christian life, you need Jesus And he is able, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, to go above and beyond all that you could ask or think. And that is certainly true in living the Christian life. The Christian life may seem impossible to you at this moment. It may seem like a standard far too high, but that is purposely done so, so that you would not rely upon yourself, but rather rely upon the strong arm of our God. Well, I want to finish just with a prayer. But I am so excited to join you in the study of Ephesians 4, and I hope you will continue this series with me as we begin to look at this incredible section of the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we do love you. Thank you that you have not merely called us to live out of duty and obligation, but rather you've given us your spirit to empower us to live the Christian life. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't get stuck in merely chapters 1 through 3 living where we have the information, but we're not living it for that is behavioral heresy, where we say one thing, but we don't live it. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just march into chapters four through six and and out of our own grit and determination try to live the Christian life outside of you. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to realize how much we desperately need you to live the Christian life. So Lord, we just thank you for the rich theology of chapters one through three. Thank you for the wonderful blessings and the wisdom and the revelation, the demonstration of your power. But Lord, Oh, we cry out, we need you in this day and this hour to live the Christian life. Lord, we just give you all the praise and all the glory. We love you. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. See you next time.